Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, throughout its tenure, the PC government in Ontario has undergone significant changes in policy, appearance, and general tone. What does Doug Ford's shift to the centre say about the longevity of populism? David Aiken will also join us to analyze yesterday's Conservative Leaders debate. The U.S. Senate has failed to pass a bill that guaranteed abortion rights across the country. What does this mean for the future of Roe versus Wade? And what should we do about online extremism? Phil Gursky, the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultant, will join us to talk about that. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. First week of June, we're actually going to go to the polls and uh, select a, a new provincial government. And there's an interesting piece in theconversation.com that talks about, well, Doug Ford, who's been the premier of a majority government here for the last four years, and uh, the change that has gone on. Uh, the rhetorical question asked is uh, what Doug Ford's shift to the center says about the longevity of populism, uh, which seems to have seeped into the uh, progressive conservative uh, philosophy on the last couple of years. It wouldn't have said that four years ago. Uh, Sam Rutley is a PhD student of political science at Western University in London uh, who wrote the piece, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about it. Sam, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. It's it's interesting to, to analyze uh, the, the philosophies that go on here. And as I said, four years ago, nobody ever would have put uh, Doug Ford and populism in the same sentence. I think we were just kind of trying to find out what this guy was all about. But as you analyze the last four years, there, we've noticed this as well. There's There's been a shift in his attitude and probably a shift in the way the whole party has looked at governing. Yeah, 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 for sure. I think uh, when... If we go back to 2018, when when Doug Ford originally ran for the leadership, um, he was sort of coming into it as the uh, former city councilor, uh, as the sort and his and his big political persona at that stage was sort of as this brash defender of his very uh, populist uh, mayor brother, and kind of prone to this sort of confrontational politics, um, picking fights with with left wing councilors, and I think. Uh, when he became leader, um, there was this sense that that he was going to bring that same style of governing, that same rhetoric, uh, to to the Ontario legislature. And in some ways, um, in the in the general 2018 election and in the first uh, year of of his PC government, he did really to to a large extent. Um, but what I found is that uh, after about a year, he had become deeply unpopular. Um, and it had shown that on a provincial level, that sort of style of politics doesn't really work in Ontario. And, and we saw th- those changes. And, and it, you're right. I mean, you know, we didn't know much about him. I mean, we knew about his brother quite well and his rise to power. And, you know, and, and when Rob Ford became the mayor, I mean, his, Doug basically was kind of his wingman, wasn't he? I mean, yeah, I'm yeah, here yeah. to support my brother. And, and he did that, you know, very effectively. Whether or not you agreed with the policies or not, we're just talking about the philosophy and the, and the relationship they had. And when he announced he wanted to run for the, the leadership of the party, he well, yeah, okay, go ahead, you know. But there was there was something about the campaign that, and as you say, he not only won the leadership, but just a couple of months after that, won the premiership. But like all politicians, I guess, he had to kind of find his way, and we thought, oh, here we go again. And I guess a lot of it had to do, though, Sam, as you mentioned in the piece, with the way he ran his campaign, too. He, you know, he was for the people, for the people, which, you know, resonates with, you know, that populism that you're talking about. But then he was kind of, you know, he was still seeking support from uh, the extreme right wing of the party uh, with some of those folks. And uh, and you wondered, OK, what this guy, what's he all about? And maybe he didn't even know at that time. Maybe the party didn't know. But there was a real change, I think, when the pandemic hit, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah I agree with you. I think uh, the, the way the way he and his team structured 
um, the 2018 provincial election appeal was that the the main source of Ontario's problems was this idea of liberal corruption or liberal self-interest, that, that the Liberals haven't been in power for a long time, were sort of exploiting Ontarians, taking advantage of um, Ontario taxpayers to kind of uh, line up their pockets, and that he and his people were the ones who were going to, in coming into office, sort of end the party with the taxpayers' money, uh, so to speak, uh, and and bring in, a, bring in smaller government, uh, less taxes and, and, and sort of a, uh, a, a stripping away of, of sort of this elite driven Ontario government establishment. And I think that involved um, in the first year, um, a lot of confrontation on the, on, on the level of policy, but also kind of within the public discourse with sort of established Ontario interests, particularly public sector unions. Um, and I think given their size and giving their power, uh, that really kind of hit this dead end. Um, that that the party really had to shift away from, and it seemed like, you know, in fall of 2019, uh, there was sort of this introspective uh, discussion going on amongst Ford and his people about sort of what do we do next, what do we transition into, and I think the pandemic in March of, of 2020 kind of brought forward that solution um, and, and, and kind of reinvented the, the, the image of Ford and his government in many ways. But there was a confusing time there. Let's go back to the first year and a half or so, of, yeah. uh, two years maybe, of his, uh, his administration. Because uh, the, the, there was mixed messaging. You know, he talked about, you know, I'm, I'm a populist. I'm for the people. We're going to do what's right. And then he took office. And, and as we've seen so many other times, a lot of the stuff that he, he criticized the Wynn administration for, he started doing, you know, favoritism to his friends, uh, you know, putting, uh, you know, friends of his and supporters of his in key positions, uh, making decisions that uh, favored an awful lot of people that made contributions. And there was there was a, a vengeful streak to him, too, wasn't there at that time, Sam? Uh, you know, everything that Kathleen Wynn did, he tore apart. Cap and trade, gone. This gone. That gone the commitment towards EV and the, all that stuff. You know, you don't get the rebates anymore. You're not going to get the uh, the subsidy. And going after Toronto City Council, a lot of people looked at that and said, well, that's, you know what, that he's just getting back at them because they didn't treat his brother or him very well when they were on council. So I'm going to slash the size of council. And we thought, boy, this guy's just, he's got a mean streak in him. Was yeah, there, yeah. I, you, I, uh, go ahead. I, I want to get your read on that. Yeah, sure. I think, I think there's this uh, attitude amongst a lot of populists um, nowadays of this sort of for me or against me sort of attitude yeah. um, that, that they sort of feel like uh, they represent the voice of the people, that their interests are the people's interests and that anyone who speaks against them or, or votes against them or does anything against their vision, uh, they're sort of part of this, this shadow elite group. And I feel like Ford perhaps realized that he didn't want to get kind of pushed into that image, into that corner so to speak. Um, and by, by March of 2020, it really kind of gone, moved out of it into this more, more focused on this broader kind of mayor of Ontario appeal, um, which is still populist in a sense, but it's much less confrontational. Was there a discussion? Uh, you talked about the, the low point. And that, you're right. It was just around the time of the pandemic and some of the uh, the things that they enacted at that time where his 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 popularity ratings were in the basement. I mean, he was just 
you know, not, not even on the radar in some people's minds. But was there a conversation that said, okay, I need to be a, a different kind of guy. I need to be, as you say, uh, you know, the, the good friend, the papa of the province, uh, as opposed to the, the, you know, the hard thinking sort of a guy that he seemed to be perceived as before, a kinder, gentler uh, Doug Ford. Was that a decision he made or were, were his handlers the one that said, Mr. Premier, uh, you know, you're sinking like a rock. You have to do something different. I, I think it was probably a bit of both. I, I really think I didn't include this in the I didn't include this in the article, but I feel like the real low point um, was at the moment over the summer uh, when you had the Raptors parade, uh, and he and and you had him and all the other political leaders there, uh, and at this very non political event, right, the most non political event of that summer, uh, he was booed by the crowd. Uh, which I think was a sign of of how unpopular he was. Um, he looked shocked that day, like, didn't he, Sam? Sorry? When you you look at the highlights, he was shocked. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're in public life, I guess you expect, okay, I'm going to get a little bit of that. But you're right, there were thousands upon thousands of people there in Nathan Phillips Square, and they were booing him. He he really looked shocked, like, oh, my God, I like he'd been living in a bubble, and all of a sudden he got hit in the head with reality. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think, he has those those roots in the sense that he's he genuinely feels like he's in it for the right reasons that he's genuinely in it for the uh, sort of average little person um, everyday Ontarian um, and I feel like he's adjusted from seeing that as this confrontational role that that there's sort of this elites are running the show and, and are very much against the common person's interest. I think he shifted from that to seeing it more as now that I'm firmly in power, now that I've gotten rid of all the bad stuff that the liberals have done, um, I can now use my position of authority as sort of the, like I said, the, the, the mayor of the province to articulate and pursue those, those much broader and much more consensus driven um, interests kind of every day um, at Queen's Park. I, you know, I, I always enjoy your articles because I know you do a lot of research uh, before you put pen to paper or, or hit the keyboard or whatever it is uh, to make things happen. But I, I wanted to get your read on this because what you've said here, I think a lot of people have noticed over the last uh, 18 months especially, was there a come to Jesus moment, you know, when he thought, whoa, wait a second, a revelation, uh, the, you know, because here's a guy who said, I, you know, I'm not giving money to rich people to go buy electric cars. That's not going to happen. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to tear all those charging stations out. Uh, I'm against this. I'm against this. And then all of a sudden, it was a different Doug Ford embracing unions. I mean, did you ever think you'd see a, a conservative premier, you know, with, up there with Jerry Dias and, and other union members? But that was yeah. his style. Uh, was he doing yeah. that because of, of political opportunism? Like, this is what I need to get reelected? Or has he really changed his attitude? What, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think I think uh, I think it's political pragmatism. It's a recognition of of uh, what's required in a province like Ontario to maintain uh, the level of support necessary to win elections. But at the same time, um, I think that the sort of political program um, that Ford came into office originally requires this this in order to sustain itself. Uh, requires this deep level of, of vision and also this willingness to to fight, um, to to engage in these uh, confrontations uh, with others and and risk uh, the 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 possibility of being deeply unpopular. Um, like I indicated, um, that sort of politics can get you into office and it can give you a couple of really 
uh, impactful years. But in terms of actually maintaining power over a long period of time, I think I think foreigners people realize that there needs to be some changes um, if we kind of want to hold on uh, to this to this job um, for for a decent amount of time. There's always going to be comparators in there. I mean, with the people that preceded you, and, and I guess that as you mentioned in the piece. Uh, the two that jump out, of course, were Mike Harris with the Common Sense Revolution and, and Bill Davis, uh, and before him, John Robarts. And, and I'm, I'm wondering if Ford looked at it, as you seem to indicate in the article here, it said, you know, Harris won a huge majority, of course, in 1995. He did get reelected, but even halfway through that second term, he pretty much realized himself that, okay, my best before date is gone, and he stepped aside. But before that, you know, go to the Davis-Robarts time, 42 years in power. And you don't get that by ruffling people's feathers. You know, you make choices, as you mentioned in the piece. But they were able to do that by, and that was, you know, conservative populism, too. And maybe I'm guessing from the way you wrote this that that maybe that that was the realization that Ford and his team came to. If you want to stay in power, you can't keep making enemies because eventually they're going to come back and get you. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a famous uh, quote um, by Bill Davis that, that, a, that a journalist asked him, uh, you know, why are you so bland? Why is your government so bland? And his response was that bland works. Yeah. Right. That 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 the sort of old PC dynasty of of, of Frost of, of Robarts and and uh, Davis um, sort of realized that that the main they understood that most people vote with the with with their economic um, immediate self interest in mind, uh, and that the way to maintain power was simply to provide pragmatic, uh, routine, effective government that ensured um, consistent economic growth, um, reasonable living standards, the idea that Ontarians could maintain a, a decent standard of life and, and expect to continue that. And as long as the government was was, dem- as, was demonstrating itself to be fulfilling those tasks well, uh, they, would, they would enjoy power. Um, but I think the problem with with that administration by a lot of conservatives is that um, at the end of the day it ultimately wasn't very conservative that the sort of principles that that ideological conservatives care about um, whether that's whether that's freedom or limited government or private markets um, or family um, or tradition uh, wasn't really apparent in that administration and really this large kind of pretty obtuse and, and ineffective Ontario bureaucracy that we're really kind of dealing with right now, I think, was was very much put into place by this long conservative government. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you could see the Harris government as very much response to that, um, both within the conservative movement in Ontario and also in the electorate more broadly. Um, and Ford's decision, you know, you know, 20 years later after the Harris government is to decide which one do I want to be. Do I want the short, impactful years, or do I want to maintain power for a long period? It's a fascinating article. They can check it out at theconversation.com. Sam, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for writing the piece, and uh, thanks for spending some time with us this morning, too. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. Sam Routley, PhD, a student of political science at Western University. Good piece that you should check out. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The first official uh, debate between conservative leadership candidates was last night. And it was a, well, rather surreal experience if you watched it. Uh, David Aiken joins us. David, of course, is the chief political correspondent with Global News. Uh, David, great to have you back on the program. I guess I'll ask you an overall question, and then we'll get into some of the details. From what we saw last night, 
if Canadians were watching that instead of the hockey game, did anybody walk away from that TV day thinking, well, that's a that's a good alternative. Right? We don't like Trudeau and that government, but these are the people. Did they instill any confidence that there was an alternative? You know, it, it's always I always remind myself I am inside the bubble. I watched a ton of debates in my time. Um, so I'm hesitate to say yes or no. But I will say this. It was a unique format. Even Jean Charest got asked about this after the uh, scrum, and he's been in a ton of debates. Um, he called it, yes, it was a it was a unique format. We learned, for example, or the moderator asked uh, to, for all the candidates to name, what was the last TV series you binge-watched? Um, Roman Babber, I don't know if he gets out much. He answered married with children. That's kind of taking people back in day. Um, you know, uh, we learned about what kind of music you like to listen to. Lesson Lewis likes to listen to John Coltrane. That's kind of cool. It, it, who was it? Uh, um, and Roman Amy Winehouse. Okay, I didn't see that coming. So we learned that you know. So, so this is this is why I say I hesitate. Yes, if you're a, poli- a political sort of a professional, we probably wanted to hear more debates about policy. But for people who might have been tuning in, you know, you're not watching a hockey game or something. Uh, you know, I think some people sometimes like to learn about what their candidates uh, um, say, feel, do. I think the big thing for the race right now, as we that, that that's really the only English language debate that the party is going to sponsor, and and I think it is going to have this impact. There's six candidates, and I think you can now sort of see the candidates sort of divide into two camps, and that's important because it's a ranked ballot. All the voters here are going to you know so and so is my number one pick, so and so is my number two pick, etc. So let's in, in the first camp, I think the front runner is Pierre Polyev, the Ontario MP. Let's, let's call this the freedom group, for lack of a better term. So we got Pierre Polyev, and then I think um, people who like Polyev may look to say Leslin Lewis as a number two, perhaps, on the ballot. Lewis is the uh, Ontario MP just down the road in Hall of Norfolk. She's the social conservative. She's the only one who is, you know, definitely pro-life. Um, you know, she's uh, 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 campaigning on that. Um, I think she'd be in this group. And then Roman Babber, another one, and people may remember Roman Babber is the Ontario MPP for the riding at York Centre. He was in Doug Ford's PC caucus, got kicked out of that caucus last year because of his opposition to mask mandates, vaccine mandates. So he's definitely freedom. So there you got you got Polyev, Lewis, and uh, and Babber. Now the other group is Jean Charest, Scott Aitchison, and Patrick Brown. Brown, of course, the Brampton, Ontario mayor. It was his first debate. He wasn't in the one last week in Ottawa. He showed up yesterday. Scott Aitchison is the Ontario MP from Huntsville, former mayor of Huntsville. And, you know, a lot of people, when I talk to conservatives, are watching this dream going, actually, I didn't really know that Scott Aitchison fellow. He doesn't seem too bad. I'd like to learn more about him. I heard that a lot last night, particularly from people who were interested in Brown or Sheree. Sheree is still the leader in that group. So that, I don't know, call them the centrist or unity people. Their, Their whole shtick is... They don't like the, the bombs that Polyev is throwing at the Bank of Canada, for example. Uh, and, and so that's a group there. So, so I think though, that's where the debate, I think, is going to go forward for this particular leadership race. Those three groups, and we'll see who can sign up more members. Everybody's got to be signed up to vote by June 3rd, so not much time left. I mean, if somebody's playing a drinking game last night, uh, David, you know, and every time the, name, the word freedom came up, uh, there's probably a lot of people with hangovers today because that seemed to be the theme. Uh, but I, I juxtapose that with the well, the news that you, you reported on, of course, is Preston Manning wrote these guys a letter last week, uh, and, and Peter McKay this past weekend on the political shows on Sunday, and both of them are saying, guys, cool it. You know, stop going after each other. Uh, they didn't pay any attention to that last night. 
Well, in a way, in a way, the format sort of did what Preston yeah. Manning and not only Peter McKay, Jason Kenny even asked, you know, said, you know, cool it down. The format was kind of restrictive in the sense that it was sort of some rapid fire rounds, yes or no answers on this. And uh, it really didn't allow for the kind of really feisty, you know, slash attack uh, kind of style that we saw last week in Edmonton. So uh, there was some exchange in which uh, Pierre Polyev, for example, got sharply criticized for his enthusiasm for cryptocurrencies. So you may have heard if you've been paying attention, Polyev really believes in, you know, the bitcoins and things like that. He says that can free you from inflation. I don't think there's a lot of economists who think that, but that's Polyev's uh, idea. And and Charay called that lunacy. That was what Charay said. So uh, so there was that. Polyev took some shots at Patrick Brown. Again, remember I said first time out for Brown. Uh, and, and Polyev talked about his flip-flopping on the carbon tax, this, there, the other thing. Essentially called him a liar. But it it didn't have the venom or the ferocity that it did a week ago that sparked the Preston Mannings and Jason Kennys of the world to say, cool it down. So I don't think people will be talking about that. And I think, you know, if you if you watch it, I think they would say that was reasonable confrontation and not outrageous confrontation, which is what uh, some of the reaction from last week was about. Got about a minute left. I got to ask you about something else. Now, as you say, there's a way to go before they actually vote on this. But with this ranked system, uh, the last two leadership campaigns, uh, David, uh, the front runner for most of the campaign ended up losing. I mean, Bernier seemed to be the, the heir apparent. Uh, and of course, Andrew Shear took him over in the 17th ballot. Uh, Peter McKay looked like the favorite last time and Aaron O'Toole came out of that. Uh, is Polly cognizant of that? This, this, this isn't over I yet. Think so. I think so. I think that's why he was out of the gate early uh, before anybody declared, before he knew the rules. I think uh, he has raised the most money, and we've seen the sizes of the rallies that he's been getting. I mean, they're off the charts. I mean, I've been covering leadership selections for you know a long time, 25-plus years, and, and they really are remarkable. So that's got to translate into something you would think. But, you know, again, I don't think that it's going to be the coronation maybe that either he or his supporters thought initially. It is a competitive race, and as I say, we've got these two groups, and so – you know, it's going to really depend on the rank ballot and how who survives through different ballots uh, when they start counting up in September. The next debate is in French in Quebec, May the, May the 25th. Only Paulie and Charest really speak French. So we're going to see how that shakes out because in this point system, every riding's worth 100 points. doesn't matter how many yeah. Conservative Party members are in a riding, 100 points. 78 ridings in Quebec, that's 7,800 points. I'm in Edmonton this morning between Edmund, Alberta and Saskatchewan, there's only 48 seats. That's only 4,800 points. Quebec, 7,800 points. And again, two candidates, Charest and Poliette, really speak French. So, you know, uh, and I know the campaigns understand that, the, the, the way you've got to go riding by riding. So uh, we'll see. But I think it's a competitive race, and, uh, but I do think Poliette is in the Catford seat right now. David Aiken, of course, uh, Chief Cor- Political Correspondent with Global News. David, always a pleasure. Thanks for this today. Yeah, no problem. Have a great morning. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's a lot of politicking going on with the uh, announcement or the leak of the announcement anyway about the U.S. Supreme Court's uh, judgment on Roe versus Wade. It looks as if it's going to be overturned. But a bill aimed at rewriting uh, Roe versus Wade into law uh, guaranteeing women access to abortion services in the United States failed on the Senate floor. Matter likely will now be thrust onto the campaign trail ahead of this year's midterm elections. Global's Reggie Cicchini's in Washington. Uh, here's his report. This bill was doomed from the start. Democrats only have a 50-seat majority and needed 60 in order to advance it. 
All Republicans and one Democrat blocked it. The motion is not agreed to. With fears the Supreme Court could end 50 years of precedent, doctors say states could enact bans swiftly if Roe is overturned and punish those who put patients first. Doctors are afraid to go to jail by performing a procedure that may go against state law. Democrats, knowing what the fate of this bill would be, now have on record those who wouldn't allow it to move forward, which could drive the base out to choose pro-choice candidates later this year. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. So it's a political hot potato, to be sure, on both sides of the border, frankly. But uh, as Reggie stated, uh, this is a, an important year down in the state's midterm elections coming up in November. And uh, the balance of power is is really on the line right now, both in the Senate and in the House of Representatives. So what gamesmanship is happening here? I want to bring uh, Wayne Petrosi into the conversation. Uh, Wayne, of course, is a professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, you're quite welcome. As, as Reggie mentioned in his report, uh, I think everybody knew this was going to fail because, as you say, you've got to have 60 votes to do it, and they knew they didn't have that going in. Do you, do you look at this as a viable strategy the Democrats are using here to try to basically out uh, Republicans on this or anybody who's opposed to it? Well, at this point, it, it was the least they could do in terms of maintaining the support of their own base. They had to, couldn't just sit there and say, let's wait to see the final ruling. They had to act, and and this was something they could do, bring a vote to the floor because they are the majority in the Senate. But they too, like as your reporting mentioned, they knew this wasn't going to go anywhere. Is is it going to work though? Is that, is that going to, uh, you know, because we, we, I'm I'm looking at the public opinion polls, and I think the number's still at about 65 or 70 percent of Americans uh, seem to have been supportive of Roe versus Wade. It, 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 are they hoping that's going to translate into votes for the Democrats come November? That's their hope. I, I I'm not. I wouldn't be so confident in that hope. Uh, it, there are lots of issues where you can pull a public, and they will give very high numbers of support. But what imp- what's more important is not what public likes or what they support, but what are they going to vote on? Are they going to vote on the basis of Roe Wade, or are they going to vote on the basis of some of the economic insecurities they're feeling currently? And I, I think that's a coin toss. I, absolutely. I know that uh, Chief Justice Roberts made some comment over the weekend. Uh, I just paraphrase it, that, uh, that our decisions are not going to be influenced by public opinion. Uh, and you can believe that or not believe it, I guess, Wayne. But the reality is, it seems as some of the decisions anyway are based on politics. Oh, there, I don't think there's a, there's any question of that. And this is the culmination of a long-term project that the Republican Party has been pursuing the last two decades or so uh, to cement the, their support within the conservatives, uh, Christian, or religious communities across the United States and the social conservative movements as well. And And... I know there's an argument to be made that they saw this coming with all the Trump appointments to the court, and that shifted the balance clearly. But a number of people, even Republicans, have expressed some deep concern right now because they said, look, during those confirmation hearings, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh both said that they weren't going to touch this, you know, that the law is the law, and then we'll just leave it, you know, whatever my thoughts are. Uh, and they both backtracked on that, clearly. Well, they did, but I think much of this is, is some Republicans now trying to cover their butts. Uh, particularly uh, uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who claimed that it was on the basis of these affirmations, private and public, that they supported these candidacies. You know, that, that I, truth is this, if you were really of a mind 
that what these folks did was misrepresent themselves and, and basically uh, misspeak while under oath and at their confirmation hearings. You know, there are provisions in the American Constitution whereby you can uh, impeach Supreme Court justices. They are appointed for life. They can be impeached. And if someone really thinks that they were lied to, uh, then, you know, go ahead. Move, uh, introduce a, a, a motion to the Senate to impeach Gorsuch or Kavanaugh or whichever one you think was the most egregious in misleading you uh, at their nomination. But that goes right back to the political arena then, doesn't it? Uh, Absolutely. Because of the way things are right now, of course, it's, they have to be impeached by the Senate, which and there's no majority in the Senate. I mean, not the way they vote anyway. So any, no, any motion, if, I mean, yeah. So if, you could if Collins get a better are, example of a vicious circle. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's going to lose, and and I guess both of them are, are realizing that if if I do that, not only is the motion going to be exercised by the party, and, and you know they don't want that either. So it's it, damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, isn't it? No, it, it most certainly is, and of course that would only further lead both sides to dig in on this. Uh, but you know the unfortunately. At this point, political discourse is broken in the United States. I don't think there's any other way to put it. I, I think there's, uh, they, unfortunately, we're in a position where on both sides, there are segments of uh, that believe that uh, this is some kind of prophecy being worked out, and uh, either for good or ill. You know, so these folks think Handmaid's Tale is a prophecy, not a piece of fiction. <sighs> bizarre stuff that's happening right now uh essentially we kept you know reminded that this is only a first draft but i mean it, it, i think the essence of it's probably going to stay simply because of the majority there but it basically says that the it's not technically striking down roe versus wade it's simply saying this is not a federal jurisdiction the, the court had no business sticking their nose in this it's up to each individual state and since most of the states these days are governed by republicans it is essentially uh, it's it is a killer for the the bill isn't it well, yes, it is. And, you know, I mean, as it's, as we speak, I think there are 13 Republican states that have passed legislation to ban it and have inserted in the legislation what they call a trigger clause, a clause that says upon overturning Roan Wade, this bill immediately comes into effect. So they won't even have to go back to their legislatures to, to, to get it confirmed again. The trigger's already there. Uh, and, you know, it speaks to, you know, just... The Senate really has become the most unrepresentative body in the American political system. Well, and you can take that all the way back. I mean, if, for people that are concerned about the way this vote seems to have rolled out now on the on the Supreme Court anyway, uh, it really kind of goes back to, to when Mitch McConnell wouldn't allow hearings on to, you know, Obama's appointee, which would have been Merritt Garland, of course, is now in the administration. Uh, but that would have maintained the balance on, on the Supreme Court uh, since he didn't do that. And eventually Gorsuch and Kavanaugh uh, you know, were, were selected instead. That's where we are today. And that's why we're where we are today, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, you know, uh, the table was set, you know, those years back. And I think everybody involved, certainly on the Republican side, were aware of the implications of what they were planning to do. And certainly aware once they executed on the plan of what was going to be the consequence. There's no doubt about that. I know this is leading across the border into our country, of course, and uh, we're being assured, I'm sure, by an awful lot of people that says, oh, no, no, it's an apples and oranges comparison. Uh, that sort of thing could never happen here in Canada. 
but we're talking about it. And there are certain elements in this country, of course, too, that would love to see abortion become illegal. It, right now, according to the criminal code, it isn't. Uh, should we be concerned about what's happening in the states and how it might impact uh, future political decisions here? I, I think what the, the concern should be more of of the sort of a concern with the, the distemper that you really see at work in the United States political system spreading into our political system. So, I, you know, I, I think it's broader than it's not issue specific. And, you know, we've already seen that some evidence of that kind of distemper bleeding into our political and culture with the convoy protests and the vaccine mandates and this, these nonsensical claims for freedom without ever being clear in anybody's mind what exactly they mean by freedom, except I don't want to do what I don't want to do. Yeah, uh, I, well, Mr. Polyev hasn't really made that definition clear to too many people. Uh, and even the, I guess the, uh, you know, the most egregious example of that, I guess, was you know when Stephen Harper took over, this, finally got his government in 2006, uh, there was concern raised there, as I recall, but, you know, all these things are going to be on the table. He just wouldn't allow it. I mean, no matter what his personal feelings are, I don't think I even know what that is on issues like this. Uh, he seemed wise enough to say, look, it, we're governing here and, and we're not going to do something that's going to drive the country uh, apart and d- divide wedges into that, which I think was good politics. Apparently, they don't have that sort of common sense down in the States these days. They cling to the things that can become wedge issues these days. No, you're right. Uh, they, they, we certainly have maintained a much more balanced political discourse in this country, and we've avoided driving the vehicle into the ditch, uh, as our American friends have managed to do. Uh, but, you know, I, so I, I'm not so sure that, you know, I don't think we're going to go there. I think there are aspects of the American system that are so unique that uh, it's unlikely to produce the same results in Canada as it has produced in the United States. What, is, is, is there a concern here, Professor, in what might happen next? And, and again, I've seen some of the, the op-ed pieces in, in the Times and the Washington Post over the last little while, and some of the commentators on some of the more small-L liberal things like MSNBC, those networks. And they're suggesting, okay, you know what, uh, you know, c- civil marriage is going to be next, and th- this is going to be the great reset now for the American culture. Uh, you know, we're going to go, uh, I, I'm sure you saw the joke over the weekend, you know, we have time zones here. We have the eastern zone uh, in, in over in Tokyo. It's a different zone. And in, that, in the United States right now, it's 1952. Uh, that We seem to be reverting back to, to those kind of uh, principles, I guess. Is, is there a concern that they, they may take this to the next level? I think with certainly intellectually at the core of the Republican Party, there has been a belief that the period, say, roughly 1950 to 1970 was an aberrant period where extraordinarily liberal measures across a variety of areas of government responsibility were brought into existence. And this has to be turned back. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, they, they've set aside, just think of the last few years, they, they've set aside aspects of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which left many southern states under federal audit to make sure they didn't do anything untoward in terms of diminishing the black vote. Well, guess what happened once the, once the Republicans did that, you know, 15 years ago? Well, now you've got a dozen Republican states that have severely restricted voting rights. Uh, you know, we, we're seeing the clock turn back I mean, a senator from Indiana, amazingly, a Republican, said that the, the Supreme Court was grievously wrong in making interracial marriages legal. And, you know, that shouldn't have ever been allowed. 
So I, I think there is an, a sense among some of the more extreme elements within the party and within their intellectual and, and supporters uh, of, yes, they'd like to see a, a great reset uh, that return things to where they were before all these activists, liberal, woke judges and policymakers arrived on the scene. As we watch this unfold, though, do you get the sense that this is almost like a surreal experience as we see what's happening here? Uh, I mean, I, I was just a kid, but I remember watching on TV, watching the Freedom Marches, Martin Luther King, and the, you know the right to vote, and and we didn't know all the inside politics then. We found out about it historically since then, uh, and the arrests of, of black people, all these sorts of things, fighting for those sorts of rights. And it seems like we're right back to that stage now where, as you say, because of some of the voting laws in Georgia and Texas and Florida and things of this nature, that, uh, that you know, it, it, the, the pendulum has swung too far to the other side. And I, I'm just wondering how the American people are going to react to this. I mean, it got ugly, of course, in the, the battle for civil rights with marches and arrests and, and Ku Klux Klan, et cetera, like that, I, I, but which, all of which still exist, of course. You just wonder where this is going to end. You know, I think it's... it's uh we're watching a, a, a historical tragedy uh, of a, a country whose political system was at one point, whether one likes it or not, a beacon for much of the world. And it no longer is. And the wounds have all been self-inflicted. No one undermined America. Americans undermined America. And that's the real tragedy. And, and the irony, because we're seeing it happen here in this country as well, the, the, the perpetrators of this movement are the first ones that scream with the word freedom time and time again. Uh, yet they're taking freedoms away from an awful lot of citizens in that country. Well, it, it, but, you know, in their view of things, the freedoms were unrealistically and, and incorrectly extended to types of people that were, it was never intended was going to be the case. Yeah, uh, well, it's it's kind of sad to watch for, for those of us that watch the United States grow up and uh, where they are right now. Um, uh, Professor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Really appreciate the time. Well, thank you, and have a good day. You too. Professor Wayne Petrosi, of course, from uh, Department of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about a couple of other issues, specifically about what's going on online and extremism online. And it's, it's something that worries a lot of us. And I know there's kind of a renewed concern about this now with the story about Elon Musk uh, looks like he's going to get a hold of Twitter. And he's pretty much said it's going to be the Wild West again on Twitter because he doesn't want to put any restrictions. He's going to reinstate Donald Trump's uh, Twitter account and basically saying, oh, no, we're not going to regulate anything, which is great news, I guess, for those who, that post extremist views and, and, and misinformation time and time again. So if that happens, how are we going to deal with this? Well, uh, Phil Gursky writes about this. Uh, you can go online to uh, borealisthreatrisk.com. His latest essay was uh, just published yesterday, and it touches on the subject. I want to get Phil back in to talk about this. Uh, Phil, of course, is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, also a distinguished fellow at the University of Ottawa Security Program and a former CSIS analyst, of course. Phil, great to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. I am, Bill. How are you today, sir? Excellent. Top of the world. Uh, looking great at the left side. They're finally starting to act like spring here in southern Ontario, so I'm a happy camper these days. Uh, read with great interest, though, uh, your piece, because uh, it, it seems to really resonate right now because of the concerns that are going on right now. Uh, as you mentioned right in the first part of the piece, you've been doing this for a long time, uh, talking about security and national security. 
uh, and personal security for that matter too. Uh, and when you started way back in the old days, uh, dinosaurs were still roaming the country, of course, and <laughs> there was no such thing as the internet. Spend a few minutes talking to us about that, about the impact that that's had on people like you and the job that you, you're trying to do. Sure. So uh, your, your listeners may not know, Bill, that before I worked at CSIS, I worked at CSC, which is Communication Security Establishment, which is Canada's signals intelligence organization, been around since the end of the Second World War. And I was part of a small team that did what we call foreign intelligence. So looking at what states were saying and how it impacted on Canada and our policies and things like that. And we had to rely on things like, remember telexes, Bill? The old telex Yes, I, yep. <laughs> you and I are probably the only, only two in your audience that do. And that was kind of the mode of, of transmission back then. And then when fax machines came in, we thought, oh, my God, fax machines are going to change the world. And then, of course, the Internet was born. And... Before I left for CSIS, I actually was head of the, the data collection and, and uh, at, at CSC and data flow. And we used to say in those days that it was like drinking from a fire hose. That's how much information we had to process and extract the intelligence. Now, I don't know what the analogy is, Bill. It's drinking from the Hoover <laughs> Dam, Niagara Falls. I really have no idea because the sheer volume of information makes it more than impossible to look at it all. So you rely on algorithms and computer programs and stuff to try and narrow down the field because the human eye simply can't do that, and the human brain can't do it. So the amount of information is scary. Um, our intelligence servers do a good job, but it is truly a Herculean task to get through it all. And, and how do you approach this? Because notwithstanding the enormity of the problem, as, as you've just outlined, your job is to do it <laughs> and with whatever tools you can find in situations like this and, and within the parameters of, of, well, I guess, the laws of the country and things of this nature. Are you concerned, though, when you hear a guy like Elon Musk saying that, that no, these, these shouldn't be regulated, this should be freedom of speech, they can say what they want, do what they want? Well, he's an American, Bill, and you know that their First Amendment rights are sacrosanct down there. You can say just about anything and post anything as long as you're not advocating killing somebody. And even then, I'm wondering what the rules are in that regard. I, I, I do worry and I don't worry. Um, I do worry, obviously, because we don't want people being exhorted to do dangerous things like what happened in the U.S. Capitol on January the 6th of last year. You remember that? That was built, you know, oh, that was yeah. Donald Trump's tweets that said, you know, the election was stolen, let's take it back. And he basically caused that riot at, uh, on the Capitol Hill. The other side of the coin, though, Bill, is that certainly in my experience at CSIS, the vast majority of people that say and write things and post things online never do a darn thing in the real world. Um, they're either cowards or they're incompetent or they're hiding behind aliases or they just do things because they want to sound like big man on campus. But when push comes to shove, and then we, we, we used to interview these guys because we'd see what they posted. And we said, you know, sit down. Like, okay, yeah, there, buddy. Uh, we've seen what you're posting. What are you all, uh, all about? And they would, you know, fold like a cheap tent. There was never any there there in terms of, of capability or intent. The problem is, is that there are those who will go from posting online to doing things in the real world, including acts of violence, including acts of terrorism. And that's, of course, the ones you want to focus on. You, don't want, you want the wannabes. You want the people that are going to actually do it. And then the question becomes, how do you narrow down that scope of a bunch of, let's face it, losers online that say dumb things to the, you know, the handful of people who are going to actually commit an act of violence? That's the challenge for our security services, I think. And I don't know how you sift through this. I know you've written about this extensively in some of your books. But to be able to, to separate one from the other in situations like that, because a lot of the time you don't know. It's like watching the murder mysteries on TV. You know, the, the yeah. victim finally gets killed by however means. And they, they, the, the police immediately go to the guy that had the argument with last night that said, if you do that again, I'm going to kill you. And it's never that guy. <laughs> it's never the guy that says he's going to do it. It's the guy that you, that you don't know until near, you know the end of the book or the end of the movie. And, and you know, in the line of business that you're in right now, you've got this incredibly enormous task of trying to find that guy that, that we don't really know yet. 
because as you say, a lot of the people that are perpetrators of this sort of action don't brag about it. Well, exactly. And in fact, if you're going to do something, why in heaven's name would you tell the whole world about it in advance, Bill? Why do you yeah. want CSIS and the RCMP and local police forces to be on your tail? You don't. So it's more the quiet ones that I think are the problem. And I, and I like your, your murder mystery analogy. I think it's spot on, is that in any given event, you're going to have a number of people that you can point to and say, hmm, that person may have had the motive or you know the urge to do something, but actually nailing them um, and, and getting them, hopefully before they do something rather than after, is the real challenge. Now, I will tip my hat, though. Uh, to my former colleagues at CSIS and my friends at the RCMP and, and people like in the OPP where I worked after I left from CSIS and the anti-terrorism section and municipal law enforcement, they do a darn good job with the resources they have. And you know as well as I do, Bill, there was, you know, I, I heard your intro about municipal governments before it came on. Yeah. You know, police forces do a million different things for us. It's not all about murder cases and that kind of thing. They do, you know, run-of-the-mill stuff all the way up to the most serious stuff. And they do a damn good job with the resources that they have. Are they perfect? No, because no one's perfect. But I'd like to say that, you know, they, they, they catch these guys more often than they're not, than, than they don't. And certainly when I was at thesis in the 2000s and 2010s, we foiled, along with the RCMP, a number of very serious terrorist plots because we were able to infiltrate these people with human sources and get warrants and surveillance and stuff like that. So it is a challenge. We do it well, but to expect perfection is completely unreal. And uh, like, like the Michaels are happy bows, you know, Parliament Hill 2014, they're going to get through because you don't have enough eyes and ears to look at everybody. That's the unfortunate reality. And let's talk about the monitoring. And I know you've talked about the five eyes and the agencies that uh, that are cooperatively uh, trying to address problems like this and, and reliant on each other. There's, I know the United States always wants to be the big dog, and most of the time they are. Uh, but, but you know, th there's other partners in here, too, and thank God there are. I mean, what, what was it? Was it a, an Australian security agency that led us on to the guy uh, down in, in the Strathroy, I think it was, that ended up uh, trying to bomb a mosque in London, Ontario? Uh, so that, that information's out there, and it's being shared. But is it okay? You look after this section with that, or is it just everybody trying to do the same job? Because, as you say, the resources here are very limited. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Um, it kind of depends. So, you know, historically, the Australians we'd give them kind of that part of the world because they had a you know unique footprint. You know, they're in the middle of nowhere in the South Pacific, and they knew it really well. They were big on Indonesia, for example. They had the language capability, etc. Um, there's an amazing sharing relationship. And yes, you, you did mention the Five Eyes. This, is, of course, is the Anglo partnership that came out of World War II. By far the world's strongest intelligence sharing. I mean, the stuff that we shared, Bill, when I was there, I mean, I wish I could tell you, but I can't because I'd have to kill you. Uh, incredibly <laughs> you know, good information that was acquired by really interesting means. But when I moved to CSIS in, 20, in 2001, I found out that the world's a lot bigger than the Five Eyes. And, and CSIS has an ability under its legislation, it's called Section 17, to share intelligence with any intelligence or a law enforcement agency in the world, provided they get the sign-off by the appropriate minister. And I found out when I worked in Islamist terrorism in those years that, yeah, the Five Eyes are great, but a lot of Western European agencies have been dealing with the same problem for decades, like the French, and they had amazing intelligence that they could share with us, and we're willing to share with us as long as we share it back. And so I would say that the sharing of intelligence is really good. It has to be done carefully. You know, some agencies... You'd rather be share rather less than more, I think, because you can't trust them. You don't know them well enough. Uh, I remember, Bill, when the when Russia was part of the G8 uh, before 2014, and I remember being in Moscow talking to the Russians. You think I'm going to get a plane on the, to Moscow tomorrow to talk to the Russians? So obviously these relationships depend on political realities, what's happening in the world. But there's an awful lot of information that's shared. It's carefully shared with the appropriate caveats. But no one nation, including our, our good friends of the South, the Americans, can do it by themselves. I think they realize that by now. 
in all of these agencies, my anecdotal information on this anyway, and you know a lot more about this than I do, there's, I guess to use another cliche, there's always a list of suspects, the usual suspects, uh, some groups that you do know, maybe even some individuals that you know, that have these leanings. And, and you know, maybe you've explored them and, and maybe you haven't, but they're, they're on your radar, in other words. Do you check up on them on a regular basis to see what they're up to or just, or you just wait for somebody to, to jump up and, and all of a sudden become relevant? A bit of both. So you do know that we have what's called the listed terrorist entities here in Canada. These are groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS and things yeah. like that. And they're big online. They want to spread their propaganda. They want to recruit new followers. They want to brag about their accomplishments. And they're kind of easy pickings because they're pretty open. They're, you know, they don't really care that we're they're monitoring them. They kind of take it as a badge of honor that they're important enough for us to keep an eye on them. But it is the onesies and twosies that pop up. And again, I'll point up, raise Michael's a happy bow again. You know, I wasn't at thesis when, when that thing happened. I don't I sort of have the background, but my guess is he probably popped up maybe peripherally at one point. Maybe they took a quick look at him and said, yeah, there's no there there as far as we can tell. And then fast forward October 22nd, he kills Nathan Cyril, then he rushes Parliament. That's not a failure on the part of the intelligence services, Bill. You can only do so much, and you have to make assessments rather quickly. Our British colleagues, MI5, the British Security Service, they've got 23,000 people on their list, Bill, that they look at. How do you look at 23,000 people? You don't. You simply can't with the amount of resources you have. So you're making gut calls uh, based on the best information you have, and most of the times you get it right, and sometimes you don't. And I'm sorry to say that sometimes those times you don't get it right, people die. I don't mean to, you know, to to find a point on it, but nobody's perfect, and, and they're just doing the best they can with what they have. Well, in the essay that uh, that you had published yesterday, I mean, you use the analogy of a whack-a-mole, and that's got to be part of the frustration, I guess, for people in your line of work. You know, okay, we've got this under control, or maybe you make an arrest here, or go have a talk, and something else pops up someplace else. I mean, almost immediately. So it's 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 there's no end in sight for this, and it's got to be very frustrating for people that are trying to keep us all safe. Absolutely. I'll go, I'll go back to the UK for another example, Bill. There's a group called Al Mujahideen who've been a real pain in the ass for the Brits for decades, and this is a, a guy called Ashim Chowdhury. He's kind of a cleric, and he's a, a, a you know a bit of a wanker. He's kind of an Al Qaeda supporter, blah blah blah. Never really enough to, to delay charges and, and arrest him and put him in jail for a long time. So they list him and list his group. Well, this group turned around. They changed the, their name by one letter or one you know they put a, another noun or another adjective, and it's a brand new group. Now you have to go through the same rigmarole to investigate. Does this group the same as the last one? Does it say the same things? Does it, you know, does it spout the same kind of rhetoric? And then that takes time. And then they list that second group. Well, they just change their, their group name to a third one. Or, you know, back to the whack-a-mole um, analogy, if, you know, if a website's taken down, uh, it's back up in, in 30 minutes under a new URL and the group just, just posted somewhere else. So you're constantly trying to catch up. And it's like that old carnival game. You know, you whack one mole, another mole's head pops up. And, you know, you've again, I, I'm, I'm sorry I'm being repetitive here, Bill. There's only so many resources to do this. And these people are working flat out, you know, seven days a week, uh, you know, 365 a year to try and keep it, help keep us safe. But you're constantly looking at who's out there and trying to keep, keep tabs on them. And it's a really, really hard job. I, I, my, my heart goes out to them because I know I've been there. And, you know, it, it takes an awful lot of effort. Again, they're doing a great job, but you just you can't do it all. It's simply impossible. And government's, you know, trying to get involved, and I think we've used that old joke, you know, the worst thing could ever happen is a politician locking in the door and says, I'm here to help, uh, because you don't know what's going to happen. Another guest that we have on the program on a pretty regular basis, uh, you and I have talked about him in the past, his name is David Videstad, and he used to work, I guess, in uh, in counterintelligence with MI5. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Uh, and he's written a couple of novels about it, but he can't write about his own experience. Uh, you know, simply as you mentioned, <laughs> because that's this secret information. But he was talking about the enormity of it too, and and how frustrating it is when you think you've got a handle on what some people are doing, and then all of a sudden somebody else strikes. And you know, we talked about you know, well, some of the terrorist attacks on trains in, in Spain, and and the stuff that's happening in the UK now too. Uh, you can't be everywhere at once. You can't look at everyone at once. And these guys are thinking outside the box, too. I mean, you know, all of a sudden, remember a couple of years ago, we had this raft of people that were just driving vehicles into crowds. Sadly, it happened in Toronto, and it's happened in other locations, too. So you, you can't rely on past experience sometimes, can you? You've got to be on the lookout for the unexpected. No, we always said, Bill, that, that really good terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS were our learning organizations. What we mean by that is that they, they, they adapt their tactics as time goes on. And they adapt their, the way they do things in accordance with the surveillance and the monitoring that they're getting. These aren't necessarily, I mean, some of these guys, you know, couldn't organize a piss up in a bar. But some are really, really bright. And they know what they're doing. And they follow, they exactly, they know what we're trying to do to interdict them. And they, and they simply change their tactics. So this is why it's a constant game of sort of catch up. And that the, the organizations have to be not only aware of where the organization is now, but where we think it's going to go next. Because they're, it's going to be a next. They're, you know, the, very few of these groups ever die. I, I always laugh about people that say, you know, terrorist group X, Y, or Z is dead. I say, prove it to me, because they tend to you know, resurrect like, like whack-a-mole later on down the road. And so I think that's the pressure on our organizations, is to try to think like they do. And we've seen this, Bill, you know, in Hollywood and stuff like that, where, you know, good police officers, detectives try to put themselves in the frame, in, in the frame of mind of the bad guy to figure out what's, what's the next step kind of thing. That's kind of what I think what counterterrorism is like is, too, to try to, you know, put your, yourself in their minds. What are they thinking about What's the likelihood they're going to do X, Y, or Z? And, and to get there at the same time they are, or, or preferably before, so you can stop them before they do something nasty. i got about a minute left, but I, I know our listeners in London are just as well listening to their converse, this conversation. I think, yeah, well, you know, because there's a, a trial, hopefully going to get out of the way pretty soon, about that tragic situation of somebody who's run down on the sidewalk in yeah. a vehicle in downtown London. Uh, you know the neighborhood. I know the neighborhood. I mean, it, it was... You know, okay, oh, yeah, this stuff happens in France and happens in the UK, but in London, Ontario, who would have thought? Is there communication between agencies like CSIS and local law enforcement to give them a heads up or to be prepared to, or any training for something like that? It can always get better, Bill. It certainly, when I was there, got better. I went across the country and briefed law enforcement on a regular basis about this kind of thing. So I can't speak to it right now. I've been gone for eight years from operations, yeah. but we did our best to try to keep people informed. There are things like secrecy and, you know, that's kind of crap, Bill. We hide behind miles, too sensitive. Look, if the information can help you do your jobs, I think we have an obligation to share it with you in a way that you can use it. So I think it's, I think it's good. I think it could get better. And uh, like you said, you, you, back to your municipal point, Bill, these are the guys on the ground. They're doing it day to day. If we can't tell them how to do their jobs better, or, no, sorry, let me rephrase that, help them to do their jobs better, we're not doing our job. And so I, I highly recommend that we do better at this and, uh, and help our law enforcement partners across the country. Phil, a great piece as usual. Uh, our listeners can go to borealisthreatandrisk.com. There's always some good stuff to read up on that web page. Uh, stay well. We'll talk again soon, Phil. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. Take care of yourself. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.